Are you looking to give your immune system a boost? This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals, liquid wild oil of oregano with rosemary extract and natural honey flavor. Future Farm's wild oil of oregano supports a variety of health benefits, including antimicrobial effects, as well as supporting the immune system. Plus, Future Farm is the first ever to formulate wild oil of oregano with rosemary. Rosemary aids circulation, helps alleviate muscle pain, improves memory, and also gives your immune system a boost. The natural honey flavor enhances the taste while still giving you all of the benefits. Future Farm sources this product from the Mediterranean and produces it in the United States. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's future, P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Wild oil of oregano is all natural, science-based, and works without adverse side effects. MyFutureFarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your Thanks host, so much. Glad to join you. It's my pleasure. Hi, uh, our guest is Dr. Randolph Nessie. Uh, he's written a great book entitled Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. It's a catchy title. Let me explain. Uh, I love anthropology. I, it was my college major, and uh, I went on to a career in medicine. And so this show is, is the perfect amalgam of my interests uh, in medicine uh, and in anthropology because it's all about uh, a new uh, science called uh, evolutionary medicine, uh, specifically in this case, evolutionary psychiatry. And uh, Dr. Nessie is uh, an expert in this uh, relatively new field. Uh, 20 years ago, he co-authored a book, Why We Get Sick. And uh, I interviewed the co-author of that book at that time. Uh, and now he's uh, taken a look at psychiatric disorders in a book entitled Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, looking uh, through an evolutionary lens at why we have uh, certain emotions and certain psychological disorders. Uh, it's really a pleasure having you on the program, Dr. Nessie. Thanks for joining us. So glad to have a chance to talk with you. Well, great. Uh, you know, so first of all, uh, what is evolutionary medicine and, and how did you get interested in it? You know, it certainly sounds like a special kind of medicine, maybe even something alternative. But all it is is bringing the basic science of evolutionary biology to bear on problems in medicine and public health. I keep trying to call it evolution and medicine, but that doesn't stick. Evolutionary medicine is just so much more catchy. Uh, it's always going to be called that. But it turns out, I mean, you would think that all basic science would have been applied to medicine long ago. It's not the case for evolutionary biology. Most doctors have simply never had a chance to learn it. A lot of researchers are missing big chunks from core concepts, and we're having a great time, those of us in evolutionary medicine, trying to connect the basic science and the clinical science and public health. A lot is happening fast. Indeed. And uh, so uh, how does an understanding of evolutionary medicine change our perspective on uh, physical and psychological disorders? You know, the real breakthrough that George Williams and I had back in the 1990s was asking a different question about disease. I mean, I had been taught in my research on neuroendocrine responses to stress were all about how the body's mechanisms work and how the mind's me mechanisms work. And, you know, what breaks 
Um, why does it break? How can we fix it? Very much of a mechanics view of medicine and disease. And in talking with him and talking with other people, including anthropologists and behavioral biologists, it finally dawned on us that there was a whole separate question we needed to ask about disease. And that is not why this individual gets sick, but why do all of us have bodies and minds so vulnerable to failure? I mean, you would almost think that somebody goofed uh, in yeah. the process of designing this thing, with whether it's the appendix or wisdom teeth or yep. the narrow birth canal or the prevalence of attention deficit disorder and depression and anxiety and addiction. I mean, it really seems like it could have been done better, um, but it didn't. And trying to figure out how to ask and answer those questions has been thrilling. Well, you know, there really is kind of a disconnect because it is our goal, you know, after all, the, the national uh, credo is a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, it is our goal to optimize our, our happiness and our well-being and, uh, and our wellness. Uh, but our bodies and minds uh, seem to balk. And, and then when our bodies and minds uh, are out of sorts, uh, we label that a disease as if, you know, something's wrong, something's broken, or maybe there's a genetic flaw, a mutation that has caused us to have something bad uh, happen in our lives. Uh, but from the standpoint of evolutionary uh, biology, um, you know, nature is kind of agnostic uh, when it comes to how we feel, isn't it? That's for sure. And in fact, uh, nature doesn't give a fig about our happiness. All it cares about is trying to shape bodies and minds that get organisms to do whatever makes more babies in the long run and raises them to reproduce themselves. That sounds so cynical. But I think, you know, the whole perspective about the utility of bad feelings really has an opportunity to correct, connect psychiatry much more closely with the rest of medicine. And when someone comes to the doctor with cough or fever or diarrhea or, or pain, the doctor doesn't say you have cough disorder, you have diarrhea disorder. They say that's a symptom, not a disease. Let's try to figure out what's causing it. Uh, but when someone comes to a psychiatrist and says, I have depression or I have anxiety or I have too much anger, very often the tendency is to jump to say, oh my goodness, there's something wrong with you. Uh, you have too much of that and there must something be something like wrong that. with your brain. Yeah, like a neurotransmitter uh, imbalance that can be uh, tweaked, you know, because we have now uh, tools in our armamentarium med medications. Right, right. And, and that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, and so I, I am often misunderstood when I talk about the benefits of bad feelings by people who say, oh, my goodness, Dr. Nessie thinks that because some of those feelings can be useful, we shouldn't interfere with them. And that is absolutely the opposite. It turns out that if you really have a deep evolutionary understanding about where these bad feelings come from, ranging from physical pain to the mental pain of depression, if you have an evolutionary understanding, it really helps you understand why it's usually safe to relieve suffering, even if it's caused by something specific and as normal suffering. You know, I'm, I'm having a very exciting uh, podcast week because last week I talked to uh, Matt Richtel, who's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, wrote, wrote a book about the immune system called An Elegant Defense. One of the key concepts that he introduced is that there's an evolutionary mismatch between the immune systems that we evolved with uh, 5, 10, 20, or 50,000 years ago, depends on where you want to cut it off, uh, and our current uh, societies, our Western civilization. And you take a similar approach, uh, linking our evolutionary, um, emotional mechanisms, uh, to our modern circumstances. And, and you suggest that there's a mismatch as well. Can you explain? 
That's for sure. And and immune responses that are excessive might be crucial for psychiatric disorders as well as autoimmune diseases. I mean, back in our book, Why We Get Sick, George Williams and I argued that, you know, the immune system is, first of all, prone to overshoot in general because of the smoke detector principle. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the immune system doesn't do its job well enough, you die. And that is quite serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if it overshoots some and causes illness, um, that's not as bad. So this whole system is set to a, a, a hair trigger to go off. But then you put it in a modern environment where we don't have the worms in us that have usually for the past million years been suppressing immune responses in general. We are eating things and having more nutrition than ever before, which augments the immune response. So now almost all of the gains we've gotten from conquering so many infectious diseases have been outweighed by the escalation of asthma and Crohn's disease and multiple sclerosis autoimmunity and all of these other autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. We had Marty Blazer here last week yeah. um, from Rutgers, who's written a marvelous book called Missing Microbes. Also a recent guest on Intelligent Medicine. Yeah, great book. Um, mm-hmm. The details. Yeah, and how the microbiome uh, is uh, very, very central to uh, not only physical health, but also emotional health. I mean, clearly, there's an impact on uh, mood, uh, the, you know, the, the gut-brain connection. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, you know, a more fundamental question, kind of a, a deep philosophic question that uh, people have been uh, arguing, I think, since the time of uh, the ancient Greek philosophers, is emotions what's the purpose of emotions i mean we undergo so many uh, gyrations in our in our moods from an evolutionary standpoint what's that about you know after treating psychiatric patients for about 10 years i decided that it was really time for me to figure out what emotions were all about and i started off my psychiatry textbooks and I found one half of one page <laughs> in a thousand page book right. about normal emotions and all of the rest was about depression, anxiety and all these abnormal things. Mm-hmm. In the rest of medicine, uh, we understand everything in terms of normal function first mm-hmm. and use that as a way to understand abnormal function. Right. So but I, I was med school. I was, I was, you know, the first year of med school, I said, I'm not learning anything about disease. I'm just learning about physiology, normal right. physiology. It's like I want to see sick people. Well, it took a year before we started talking about pathophysiology. But right. uh, I agree that in, when it comes to uh, the study of the mind, uh, we emphasize abnormal uh, behaviors in psychology. And a lot of them are abnormal, but how do you tell where normal depression and anxiety stops and where abnormal begins? The definition that's made, been made by the American Psychiatric Association depends on counting the number of symptoms and how severe they are and how long they last. And this is really good for making reliable diagnoses, but it's terrible. I mean, no doctor would ever say, oh, you've had, you've coughed at least 10 times a day for at least 10 days. You have cough disorder. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, doctors try to figure out if there's something causing it. And then the last ditch re- re- explanation, if they can't find anything, they might say, you know, I think your cough regulation mechanism is off, mm-hmm. but only mm-hmm. after a careful investigation. Right. So do you see the danger of diagnostic uh, creep, especially in uh, psychiatry? I mean, over the course of your career, have you seen uh, what were previously considered maybe eccentric behaviors become pathologized and put into disease boxes? Sure do, but I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to both sides on this one, actually, Dr. Hoffman. It's, um, on the one hand, um, Alan Francis has written a whole book about the diagnostic creep and how everything is becoming abnormal in the DSM, which is the standard statistical manual for describing diagnoses. But on the other hand, people want help. 
and they can't get help and get their insurance companies to pay for it unless there is a, a code next to it. Right. So I'm kind of I'm kind of sympathetic on both both sides here, um, but. But this whole business of trying to decide what's normal and not, I mean, maybe you're aware and maybe you're not that the diagnostic system in many ways has collapsed. Uh, the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health has said we don't want to use it anymore. It's hopeless. The first page of the leading textbook of psychiatry said that there's no justification for the validity of these diagnoses. Hmm. We keep using it. It's useful. Um, but people keep thinking of these things as specific diseases with specific causes. We're going to find the genes. We're going to find the brain abnormalities. We've been doing that for 30 years now, and it just isn't working. Well, yeah, obviously, we sort of hit a, a crisis uh, using that, that paradigm, which is, you know, in some ways reductive and is also leading us to pathologize every form of human behavior. Right. So when it comes to emotion, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a paradox inherent in your discussion. Uh, you talk about emotion as, you know, it's a motivator. Okay. It, I mean, I've, it's from, from the first, you know, one celled organism that, you know, you drop a, a drop of hydrochloric acid in one side of the, uh, petri dish and it moves away from that. You know, that's a reaction. Emotions get us to react, but they get us to react in, in according to what your discussion is about to either escape you know, so-called fight or flight. I guess that's one form of uh, escape. But also, uh, emotions can lead us to stop striving and conserve energy. You know, just sort of, uh, you know, it's like the um, uh, the Jewish mother light bulb jo joke. You know, how many Jewish mothers does it take to uh, screw in a light bulb? That's okay. Yep. I'll sit in the dark. You know that joke? <laughs> right. You know, that sort of resignation, like, you know, I'm just, I'm just giving up. I'm giving up. Right. So it's easy for most people to see how fear and anxiety can be useful, because if you're faced with danger, it's good to get out of there and not go back there. Um, but what about these situations where we are our motivation flags, and we don't feel like doing anything, and we feel like we're worthless people? And everybody has times like that. Mm -hmm. Some people have them all the time, and then we call it depression. Um, why on earth would that ever be useful? So here's one where in modern societies, it generally isn't useful. I mean, usually there's something you can do that might be good, uh, at least for your genes. On the other hand, why on earth would natural selection have programmed in a system to make motivation ratchet down as well as up? Ratcheting up is easy to understand. Hey, when there's a great opportunity, go for it. Mm -hmm. uh, do it. But there sure are a lot of circumstances in life, especially way back when, but even now too, when the best thing to do is really nothing. I mean, if you're the enthusiastic type living in Africa who insists on running for 10 kilometers to go to a nut tree that someone else just a few days before found was empty, that is not a smart thing to do. It'd be much better to just hunker down and wait. Um, there are times when it's best to do nothing, and especially in social life, um, sometimes you're striving and striving, whether it's to get into a certain school or, or to get a paper published or to get somebody to marry you, and it's just not working. Um, there comes a point when it's best to at least pause and possibly do something else. This is this seems very non-American. We're all told, keep trying, keep trying, mm -hmm. keep trying, mm -hmm. never give up, never give up. And I did that for the first 15 years of my practice of psychiatry mm -hmm. until I finally started understanding that low mood and emotions in general have meaning. We They're should try to look at their causes yeah. and see what's going on in a person's life. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the, uh, the meme uh, the true definition of insanity is to keep doing uh, whatever yes. you're doing uh, and expecting a different result. 
And, right. you know, I guess, you know, when you sort, you find, you know, you, you go to the Coke machine and you put your money in and it doesn't deliver a Coke and you bang and bang and bang on the machine, there's a certain point at which you just walk away from the machine, <laughs> you, know? you know? It's such a simple idea, isn't it? That, you know, actually it's not good to just keep trying indefinitely at some point. It's best to not keep trying. I've, I've met patients who are, they move to Tennessee and they want to go into the Grand Ole Opry and they work as a waitress for, you know, seven years and the chances of getting lower and lower and lower and they're more and more and more discouraged and depressed. You know, there comes a point when you feel so much better when you quit doing something mm-hmm. that is just not working. And, and the emotion that's associated with that is sort of a sadness, a sort of a resignation. It, it, it resembles depression, It's a, but it is an emotion that has utility from an evolutionary standpoint because you're just not going to keep going to that nut tree that doesn't deliver because otherwise you're going to exhaust a lot of calories and uh, you're going to starve and you won't perpetuate the species. That's right. That's right. And I actually, I, my, my work has led to me to make a pretty sharp distinction here, Dr. Hoffman, between um, pursuing things that don't work and, you know, pursuing things that you just need a break. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just need a break and that a lot of times our motivation turns off and we wait a day or a week or a year and we come back to things and, and the environment's better, just like that nut tree started growing nuts again. Mm-hmm. That's really good. But I also try to distinguish very carefully uh, between what I call low mood and depression. Because as soon as you say the word depression these days, everybody assumes it's an abnormal state. Mm-hmm. And low mood refers to mostly mild depression that might or might not be caused by something that is normally arousing it. And it's still different from sadness. I mean, sadness is caused by a loss. And losses are terrible and we feel awful and then it gets better. Uh, if, a loss, if a loss is specific, whether it's your house burns down or you lose your spouse or something, um, it's awful, but it goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you're trapped in a situation, pursuing some unreachable goal, that kind of bad low mood can go on for a long time. And, and of course, that sadness, the being bereft, grief, loss, uh, is the flip side of another powerful emotion, which is a very important uh, form of social cohesion, which is uh, attachment. Attachment right. is, you know, such a powerful uh, motivator for humans. But then when they lose either... Uh, a personal relation uh, or a possession or a social circumstance, they feel bereft. But I guess you can't have the upside without some of the downside. Is that correct? That's certainly what it seems to be. You know, this is an issue that hasn't been resolved scientifically. Um, Some people say that grief is simply a side effect of attachment Mm -hmm. and it's useless and the like. Other people say, you know, Something that bad that interferes with function so much, it's got to have some utility, even though it's kind of hard to see uh, what it might be. There are so many questions like that in this field that are, are ripe for studies and deeper thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also brings up the question, um, could treating someone with antidepressants be disadvantageous in some circumstances? Could you be actually... Um, you know, uh, interfering with them having an epiphany about their, their life circumstances. You know, I teach, I'm teaching a course right now um, on evolution and mental disorders using my new book uh, as a text. And uh, we spent 45 minutes last week discussing exactly this point. It was fascinating to hear the students talk about it. The question was, if you had a drug that would just eliminate grief, 
would you take it if you had lost a loved one? Mm -hmm. And some said, well, absolutely, there's no point in, in moping around for no purpose and feeling awful. Other people said, no, it would deprive us of our humanity and probably it would interfere somehow uh, with our actual relationships with people. Again, isn't it fascinating that so many fundamental questions are unanswered? You asked a more general question about whether antidepressants should ever not be used. Mm -hmm. I'm very uncertain about that. I mean, that's a little like saying, should we ever not use analgesics to relieve pain? Right. And there are times when somebody has appendicitis, you want to you know, not relieve the pain and make it go away until you make a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we need to leave that pain there. And certainly when somebody's got a bum hip, you give them something that with morphine that, so that they can jump around on it, they're going to hurt their hip more yep. Yep. Um, and, and like. But most of the time, we can block pain safely, and there's a good evolutionary reason for that. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, to use a physical analogy, you know, if somebody has, uh, uh, you know, cholera or salmonella, uh, you don't want to give them uh, intestinal tranquilizers, which prevent the body from expelling the the toxins and the pathogens. Uh, or similarly, when people have uh, a fever, yeah, I mean, a very high fever can be deleterious, but you know, you. You, you watch the thermometer and you sort of play chicken until the, the fever gets uh, exceedingly high because you know that fever is part of the resolution uh, of a certain type of uh, pathological or abnormal condition. Uh, not necessarily so it's abnormal. So good to hear you, it's so good to hear you saying that because um, I think most doctors kind of realize that these are all normal responses that can be useful. But it's terribly important for doctors, I think, to be able to make individualized treatment decisions based on their understanding of how the smoke detector principle mm -hmm. influences the expression of these kind of bad feelings, often when they're not really necessary. Right. That's a really interesting concept of the smoke detector principle. So uh, you're saying that uh, aversive uh, emotions are kind of like our uh, our smoke detector, an emotion like uh, sadness, anxiety. Uh, these are, are critical emotions because if we were stripped of those, uh, we wouldn't survive in a potentially hostile or dangerous environment. But don't we all have way too much of them? Oh, boy, yeah. we do. Yeah. And, and it's not just other people. It's all of us who seem, seem at least to have too much of those. So I spent about a year thinking about this, trying to figure out why on earth do so many people have so much anxiety? Mm -hmm. And finally, I did the math. And it turns out you have to use something called signal detection theory, mm -hmm. uh, created by Swetson Green in 1966. It's a fairly simple mathematical model where you ask yourself, so how likely is it that there's a lion behind that rock? Hmm. And how much would it cost me to run, even if there's no lion there? And how much would it cost me if there is a lion there and I don't run? And, of course, the, the cost of running is basically the cost of a panic attack, which is a fight-flight response. That's about 100 calories. And the cost, if you don't run and there's a lion there, after all, uh, that might be 100,000 calories. So if you crank the math, it comes out very simply that you should run whenever the sound is loud enough to indicate that there's a greater than 1 in 1,000 chance there's a lion there. And that means that the vast majority of panic attacks like that will be unnecessary in the individual instance, mm -hmm. but perfectly normal. And that means you can block them safely. Or, or as Mark Twain once famously said, uh, I've been through some terrible things in my life, and some of them actually happened. <laughs> Love it. Love yeah, it. Because, I mean, we're, we're sort of, um, uh, you know, sen sensitized. I mean, it's almost like we have a, uh, um, like a mousetrap, uh, kind of, uh, responsiveness 
to potentially dangerous situations. But in, in the modern world, um, does this become maladaptive? Can we be sort of uh, almost uh, behaviorally modified to be anxious all the time when the real threats are fairly minimal? That's right. That's right. And and our minds were wired way back when, when we needed to be afraid of snakes and spiders and wild dogs, um, instead of whether the boss is at a cocktail party or drugs or needles or, um, or, or cigarettes, which are things that are genuinely dangerous now. Hmm. All right. Well, you, you've laid the groundwork for uh, some additional discussion of good reasons for bad feelings. We're going to take a look at some uh, specific disorders. We're going to take a look at uh, schizophrenia, autism, uh, bipolar disorder, some conditions that uh, are, are generally recognized as very, very serious uh, psychiatric problems, but uh, maybe, just maybe, uh, there's an evolutionary basis for them. Uh, we're talking to um, a pioneer in the field of evolutionary medicine, Dr. Randolph Nessie, uh, and the book is Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and we'll be right back with more of Intelligent Medicine. 